The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio with Lee Whitting. Whether you're listening on TalkZone, by podcast, through the archives of our ad-free shows on our YouTube channel, or connected through the incredible content of our Facebook page. Since May is the month many Christians annually celebrate as dedicated to Jesus' mother, Mary, I thought this would be a good time to reflect on the role played by Marian apparitions in today's war of Russian genocide against the people of Ukraine. The city of Mariupol, a city named for Mary, has been the most devastated target of Putin's aggression to date. At the moment I'm recording this, 90% of Mariupol is already blown to bits. Thousands of the city's women and children are buried in mass graves, and the remaining Ukrainian soldier martyrs are cornered in a bombed-out steel factory with hundreds of additional citizens refusing to surrender and pledging to fight the Russian invaders to death. What do these martyrs dying for Mariupol symbolize for Ukraine and the future of the world? On today's show, I want to visit a number of supernatural appearances of Mary, first in Rushiv, Ukraine, in May of 1914, then at Fatima in Portugal, beginning May 1917, and again in Rushiv in April and May of 1987. The reason being, there is a need to reflect on the spiritual implications of the genocide war in Ukraine, now under the command of the Putin-appointed general known as the Butcher of Syria. First of all, it's important to note that the special relationship between Ukrainians and Mary goes back nearly a thousand years. Ukraine embraced Christianity in the year 988 and became the first country in the world consecrated to Mary just 49 years later in 1037. Mary's first apparition in Rushev, Ukraine, took place on May 12, 1914, two weeks before World War I broke out. It's reported Mary appeared to 22 people working in the fields near the Church of the Holy Trinity in Rushev, and this is what she told them. There will be a war. Russia will become a godless country. Ukraine, as a nation, will suffer terribly for 80 years and will have to live through the world wars, but will be free afterwards. One of Mary's best-known appearances took place exactly three years later at Fatima, Portugal. After the angel of peace first appeared to three shepherd children, Mary appeared to the three beginning on May 13, 1917. Mary prophesied to them the plunge of Russia into atheism, among other things. And here I will go into the Fatima prophecies a bit, as laid out by Wikipedia, because they seem to me related to today's story of Russia and Ukraine. The Three Secrets of Fatima are a series of apocalyptic visions and prophecies given to three young Portuguese shepherds, Lucia and her cousins, Cinta and Francisco Marto, by Mary. The three children were visited by Mary six times between May and October 1917 and were told three secrets, among other things. The first secret, revealed by Lucia in 1941, was a vision of hell. She wrote, 
Our Lady showed us a great sea of fire, which seemed to be under the earth. Plunged into this fire were demons and souls in human form like transparent burning embers, all blackened or burnished bronze floating about in the conflagration, now raised into the air by the flames that issued from within themselves, together with great clouds of smoke, now falling back on every side like sparks in a huge fire, without weight or equilibrium, and amid shrieks and groans of pain and despair, which horrified us and made us tremble with fear. The demons could be distinguished by their terrifying and repulsive likeness to frightful and unknown animals, all black and transparent. This vision lasted but an instant, but how can we ever be grateful enough to our kind Heavenly Mother, who had already prepared us by promising in the first apparition to take us to heaven? Otherwise, I think we would have died of fear and terror. The second secret was also revealed by Lucia in 1941, who quoted Mary as telling them, You have seen hell where the souls of poor sinners go. To save them, God wishes to establish in the world devotion to my immaculate heart. If what I say to you is done, many souls will be saved and there will be peace. The war is going to end, but if people do not cease offending God, a worse one will break out during the pontificate of Pope Pius XI. That, of course, was World War II. When you see a night illumined by an unknown light, know that this is the great sign given you by God that he is about to punish the world for its crimes by means of war, famine, and persecutions of the Church and of the Holy Father. To prevent this, I shall come to ask for the consecration of Russia to my Immaculate Heart and the communion of reparation on the first Saturdays. If my requests are heeded, Russia will be converted and there will be peace. If not, she will spread her errors throughout the world, causing wars and persecutions of the church. The good will be martyred. The Holy Father will have much to suffer. Various nations will be annihilated. In the end, my immaculate heart will triumph. The Holy Father will consecrate Russia to me and she shall be converted, and a period of peace will be granted to the world. I should mention here the consecration of Russia to Mary has actually been made a number of times, the most recent being on March 25th, 2022, this year, when Pope Francis consecrated both Russia and Ukraine to the Immaculate Heart of Mary amid the Russo-Ukrainian War. The third secret was written down by Lucia in January of 1944. She wrote, After the two parts which I have already explained, at the left of Our Lady and a little above, we saw an angel with a flaming sword in his left hand. Flashing, it gave out flames that looked as though they would set the world on fire. But they died out in contact with the splendor that Our Lady radiated towards him from her right hand. Pointing to the earth with his right hand, the angel cried out in a loud voice, Penance, penance, penance. And we saw in an immense light that is God, something similar to how people appear in a mirror when they pass in front of it, a bishop dressed in white. We had the impression that it was the Holy Father. Other bishops, priests, men and women, religious, going up a steep mountain, 
at the top of which there was a big cross of rough-hewn trunks as of a cork tree with a bark. Before reaching there, the Holy Father passed through a big city, half in ruins and half trembling with halting step, afflicted with pain and sorrow. He prayed for the souls of the corpses he met on his way. Having reached the top of the mountain, on his knees at the foot of the big cross, he was killed by a group of soldiers who fired bullets and arrows at him. And in the same way, there died one after another, the other bishops, priests, men and women, religious, and various lay people of different ranks and positions. Beneath the two arms of the cross, there were two angels, each with a crystal sprinkler in their hand, in which they gathered up the blood of the martyrs and with it sprinkled the souls that were making their way to God. In May of 1920, three years after Mary's appearance at Fatima, Russia's military goal briefly became the conquest of Eastern Europe and Lenin's first targets were the Ukrainians and Poland. Lenin's Red Army attacked through the Ukraine to Poland in May of 1920 with an army that outnumbered the Polish army 10 to 1. But the people of Poland turned to prayer, organized through their churches, and the Russian army was pushed back. It was even claimed that Mary appeared in the sky above the warring armies, empowering the Polish and terrifying the Russians. So their conquest of Poland was defeated by both bravery and prayer. But the suffering of Ukrainians at the hands of the Russians continued. In 1932-33, Stalin starved to death almost 4 million Ukrainians, some 13% of the population, for not agreeing to collectivize the Ukrainian farms. During World War II, Stalin used Ukrainians as cannon fodder against the Germans. And then in 1946-47, another million Ukrainians were starved to death under Stalin's reign. Meanwhile, Russia made ongoing attacks against the Ukrainian language and culture. On April 26, 1986, the Russian nuclear power plant in Chernobyl, Ukraine, was so mismanaged that it melted down, poisoning the land, the water, and the people. As many of you know, Chernobyl has a reference in biblical revelation, since Chernobyl in Ukrainian means wormwood. To quote Revelation 8, uh, 11, 13, 11 through 13, Then the third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star burning like a torch fell from heaven and landed on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood, that is Chernobyl. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. Clearly, this biblical reference to nuclear radiation poisoning should be understood as more than a coincidence. It was 70 years after her appearance in Fatima in 1987 that Mary appeared for a second time at the church of Rushev, Ukraine. Now, it must be noted that periods of 70 years are significant, biblically speaking. For instance, 70 years was the period of exile when the Hebrews were defeated and taken from Israel to Babylon. And it was 70 years after Jesus' birth that the temple was destroyed. The number 70 appears again and again in Jewish tradition. 
But most significantly, it was exactly one year after the Chernobyl meltdown on April 26, 1986, that Our Lady Afrushiv appeared, first to a 12-year-old, Maria Kaizen, with a nuclear warning. The Holy Mother began appearing above the tower of the small wooden church dedicated to the Holy Trinity and belonging to the Greek Catholic community. It had long been an important pilgrimage site due to the Mary's appearance there in 1914, but communist authorities had shut it down. When Mary first appeared, Maria called her mom and neighbors. News of the apparition spread quickly, and soon 70,000 people a day were visiting the church, which for three weeks was surrounded by a silver aura. The militia and KGB were unable to shut it down, and the crowds began to receive messages such as this one, as reported in a, uh, a new book, The World of Marian Apparitions, written by the Polish theologian Wincenty Lazuski. Ukraine, my daughter, one of the messages went, I pray for you, for your children, for your future. There will come a time when your people, so in love with God, will gain independence and become a salvation for those who keep their faith in Jesus Christ. True to Mary's prediction, of course, Ukraine did become an independent country on August 24th, 1991. Mary also warned them, Many will come as false messiahs and prophets. Therefore, I warn you, stay awake and be careful. Happy are the lives of those who are without transgressions and keep God's commandments. And two days later, Mary told them, Lucifer is losing strength. To keep his place on the throne of darkness, he has already begun announcing that he has improved, but this is not true. Lucifer is intelligent and cunning. Mary also told them, pray for Russia. Russia will only convert when all Christians will pray for it. In all, some 500,000 people witnessed these apparitions, including the KGB soldiers stationed there. Mary also told them, I have come on purpose to thank the Ukrainian people because you have suffered most for the Church of Christ in the last 70 years. I have come to comfort you and tell you that your suffering will soon come to an end. Ukraine will become an independent state. It seems especially significant that Mary appeared on April 26, 1987, exactly one year after the Chernobyl disaster, in light of Putin's recent threats of nuclear war. Mary delivered this nuclear warning. Do not forget those who have died in the Chernobyl disaster. Chernobyl is a reminder and a sign for the whole world. And then she told them this prophecy. Forgive your enemies. Through you and the blood of martyrs will come the conversion of Russia. Repent and love one another. The times are coming, which have been foretold as being those in the end times. See the desolation which surrounds the world, the sin, the sloth, the genocide. Pray for Russia. Oppression and wars continue to occupy the minds and hearts of many people. Russia, despite everything, continues to deny my son. Russia rejects real life and continues to live in darkness. If there is not a return to Christianity in Russia, there will be a third world war, 
and the whole world will face ruin. Teach the children to pray. Teach them to live in truth and live yourselves in truth. Pray the rosary. Anyone following the news today knows all too well of the horrors being inflicted by Russia on the citizens of Ukraine. The bloodthirsty bombing of hospitals, family shelters, homes and schools, the rape and torture and murder of women and children, the mutilation of young and old alike. These atrocities give Russia no military advantage, but truly exemplify their pact with the demonic evil of the end times. Ukrainian President Zelensky is even now suggesting Putin's genocide represents the beginning of World War III. You may remember President Biden once looked Vladimir Putin in the eye and told him, you have no soul. To which Putin replied, then we understand one another. If Putin has no soul, it implies he's sold it to Satan already. As I'm writing this, the news is announcing that today, April 20th, on Hitler's birthday, Putin chose to test launch launch a new multi-headed nuclear-capable ICBM as a warning to NATO and the U.S. Putin's name for that missile is Satan II, perhaps to honor his soul's custodian. And of course, Putin has spent years seeding division and corruption in democratic governments. As far back as 2016, Republican congressional leader Kevin McCarthy declared that even Donald Trump was on Putin's payroll. Since World War III is considered by many to be the Armageddon War over Israel that triggers the end times, and because Mary referenced that possibility during her appearance in Rushiv, I thought I'd read some passages concerning that possibility from Ezekiel 38 which has long been interpreted by some as a prophecy of Russia invading Israel, along with the kings from other corners of the world. Ezekiel was a major Old Testament prophet who lived during the 6th century BC. So, of course, the ancient text had ancient names for today's locations. For example, Gog names the Prince of Rosh, while Magog is the land area around the Black Sea, and Caspian Sea, meaning parts of Russia, as Putin sees it. The indicators are so clear, I have inserted the modern phrases for Ezekiel's ancient terms. In the following, horses become horsepower, swords become weapons, etc. Chapter 38 of Ezekiel is titled, The Lord's Great Victory Over the Nations, and begins, The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face against Gog, the prince of Russia, of the land of of Scythians around the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, which is Russia, the chief prince of Russia, Moscow and Tobolsk, um, which is a city in Russian Siberia, the ancient capital of Russian Siberia. Prophesy against them and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says, I am against you. Chief Prince of Russia, Moscow, and Tobolsk. I will turn you around, put hooks in your jaws, and bring you out with your whole army, your horsepower, your drivers fully armed, and a great horde with large and small shields, all of them brandishing their swords, their weapons. Persia, 
which is Iran, Kush, which is Egypt, and Put, which is Libya, will be with them, all with shields and helmets. Also Gomer, which is Turkey, and all its with all its troops, and Beth Togarma, Armenia, from the far corner, from the far north, rather, with all its troops, the many nations with you. Get ready, be prepared, you and all the hordes gathered about you, and take command of them. After many days, you will be called to arms. In future years, you will invade a land that has recovered from war, whose people were gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They had been brought out from the nations, and now all of them live in safety. You and your troops and the many nations with you will go up, advancing like a storm. You'll be like a cloud covering the land. This is what the sovereign Lord says. On that day, thoughts will come into your mind, and you will devise an evil scheme. You will say, I will invade invade a land of unwalled villages. I will attack a peaceful and unsuspecting people, all of them living without walls and without gates and bars. And by the way, doesn't this sound exactly like what Russia is doing to the Ukraine today? I will plunder and loot and turn my hand against the resettled ruins and the people gathered from the nations, rich in livestock and goods, living at the center of the land, which is the navel of the earth, Israel. Sheba and Dendan and the merchants of Tarshish and all her villages will say to you, have you come to plunder? Have you gathered your hordes to loot, to carry off silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods and to seize much plunder? Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to the prince of Russia, this is what the sovereign Lord says. In that day, when my people Israel are living in safety, will you not take notice of it? You will come from your place in the far north, you and many nations with you, all of them riding on with great horsepower, a great horde, a mighty army. You will advance against my people Israel like a cloud that covers the land. In days to come, prince of Russia, I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. This is what the sovereign Lord says. You are the one I spoke of in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel. At that time, they prophesied for years that I would bring you against them. This is what will happen in that day when the prince of Russia Attacks the land of Israel, my hot anger will be aroused, declares the sovereign Lord. In my zeal and fiery wrath, I I declare that at that time there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish in the sea, the birds in the air, the beasts of the field, every creature that moves along the ground, and all the people in the face of the earth will tremble at my presence. The mountains will be overturned, the cliffs will crumble, and every wall will fall to the ground. I will summon a sword against the prince of Russia on all my mountains, declares the sovereign Lord. Every man's sword will be against his brother. I will execute judgment on him with plague and bloodshed. I will pour down torrents of rain, hailstones, and burning sulfur on him and on his troops and on the many nations with him. And so I will show my greatness and my holiness, and I will make myself known in the sight of many nations. They will know that I am the Lord. 
This Old Testament God from Ezekiel sounds harsh, I know, but God's anger against the Prince of Russia is only equal to the misery that Russia is expending on tomorrow's Israel and on the Ukraine of today. Logicians out there might ask, what would be the sense of Russia attacking a peaceful Israel? But then what is the sense in Russia attacking the peaceful land of Ukraine? Bear in mind, Russia already controls Syria. If Russia wins in Ukraine, Israel could be next. At this point, I'd like to read you some excerpts from my book, Beneath the Phoenix Door. To set the scene, teachers Jacob and Maggie, accompanied by a yellow bird, are climbing through the intertwined trees of life and of knowledge in the Garden of Eden. The trees wind around each other to form the pattern of DNA with an upward-moving ladder of connection between the spiraling trees. They climb through time, high enough to encounter a glimpse of the beauty of creation, followed by scenes from the Bible, Jesus being offered the world, followed by some from Revelation describing creation's destruction at the hand of man. Note the similarity of the passage from the Old Testament's Ezekiel 38, which I just read, to the passages Jacob cites from the New Testament's book of Revelation. As their feet touched the moving ladder, the world changed. At first, it seemed that everything had stopped long enough for them to see an extraordinary detail. Jacob focused on one leaf, a leaf that moments ago would have seemed like any other. Now this leaf became the leaf of leaves, the penultimate leaf, the master pattern for all leaves in the universe. The colors were extraordinary. Green became every color of the rainbow and more. Colors Jacob had never seen or dreamed of seeing. Stunning, stunned by the beauty, Jacob looked closer. Hundreds of veins, lines, cells fit together in the most intricate of puzzles, the most phenomenal of artwork, the most poetic of patterns. Life pulsed through the leaf with a power and energy Jacob had never imagined possible. Jacob's eyes became microscopes. The life of microorganisms within this life of leaf pulsed together aiding, threatening, consuming, healing, until his mind could no longer sort out the order from the chaos. Within those organisms, smaller organisms fought simpler but no less fascinating battles while everything that was leaf surged and flowed and reacted to everything around them. My God, was all Jacob could murmur. While Maggie said nothing at all, she had looked at her own right hand the hand she'd lived with all her life, a hand she never knew existed. First, the color of her skin, radiant, translucent, red and blue and white and purple, every color pulsing with life, lines, stories, character, mystery, danger, truth, friendship, power. Part of her, yet apart from her, the hand of all hands, and yet her hand. How could such a miracle be possible? Wherever they turned their attention, another miracle appeared. Maggie looked at what she'd called the little yellow bird. Little wasn't it at all. When she looked, it filled her whole vision. It was enormous in every sense of the word. Hugely beautiful, hugely wise, hugely powerful. An all-seeing creature that could overwhelm a dinosaur should the need arise. And yellow? How could she have described its beauty so flatly? 
the bird radiated iridescence, as if the most shimmering of hummingbirds had perched on her shoulder instead of a modest canary. Is this how the world is? Maggie whispered to the bird. Why didn't I know this before? You don't normally have time, the bird replied. If you looked at every young face in your classroom, really looked at them, like you're seeing them right, seeing right now, you'd never have the time or inclination to teach them anything. You'd be too busy learning from them about God. Jacob realized he was crying for perhaps the first time in years. To think what I have missed, he said softly. Memories of his mother's eyes, his boyhood dog, his best friend in fourth grade, his first love in high school. His memory of each face was perfect. Each was close enough to touch, and each smiled with love when he did. Jacob was completely overcome with love. He turned and held Maggie in his arms as if she were his only hope for returning all the love he had been given in his life. They clung together, eyes wide open, while the latter spiraled upward through the trees of life and knowing. This is our stop, the canary said suddenly, and following his direction, Jacob and Maggie stepped onto the nearest branch. Neither had any idea how long they'd been riding upward or how far they had come. As soon as they stepped off their escalator, however, their ordinary view of things returned. Jacob looked around with care, but all he saw was the thick green foliage of the tree. The branch they stood upon was just as thick as before, and Jacob wondered if they had moved at all or whether it had just been an incredible hallucination. Maggie picked up on his thought, but dismissed it. Now, we have come quite a way, Jacob, she interrupted. Look, for one thing, there aren't any angels traveling every which way around us up here. And for another, I would trust this bird with my very life. This bird would not, could not lie to us. If you doubt anything about that ride, ask my friend. I'm honored by your trust, said the bird. But Jacob's right in a way. Movement here is a matter of conjecture. And the perception of going from place to place may not actually be real in a larger sense. But as far as we are concerned, we've moved and come a long way at that. Follow me along this branch, the bird said and fluttered through the leaves. Wait, Jacob called. What about the danger at the end of the branch of, of getting lost in our past? We're above all that here, the bird called out faintly. Come on. Maggie and Jacob looked at each other, shrugged, and followed cautiously along the limb. It wasn't long before they caught up with the bird, who was perched at the end of the narrowed branch. Their view was still obscured by foliage, and Jacob waited for the bird's instructions. This is your present time up here, the bird said. I thought you might like to uh, look at the state of things. When we push past the leaves, just relax, look out, and listen to my voice. I can tune things for you to some extent if you'd let if you let me. Holding Maggie's hand, Jacob sidled up to the last bough of leaves and pushed them aside. It felt as though they were looking out over the whole world, and it reminded Jacob of the passage from Matthew 4. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. It does look glorious from up here, doesn't it? The bird said, but 
Look at why it was easy for Jesus to reject the offer. As they watched, the bird brought their view closer until they could see the true connection of things. Drought, fire and famine, floods and falling water tables, polluted rivers and oceans and air, dying rainforests, political wars and the greed of the wealthy, diseases of blood and organ and skin, madness and the abuse of children, pesticides and radioactive waste. Strip mining and the deaths of whole species filled their sight as the bird took them on lightning tours of Africa, Asia, Europe, and the Americas, and even the Arctic Poles. All was on its way to ruin, a waste and a desolation as the failed stewardship of man revealed itself to them. This is what you've done with a creation that was given to you, the bird said softly. Jacob let the branch swing back, obscuring the view once again. Now, said the bird, after a minute, we must climb higher. I don't think I can stand a clearer view than the one we just saw, Jacob said with a heavy heart. What could we possibly see that we haven't already seen? The future, what you would call prophecy, said the bird. At this late date, of course, it takes no vision to see the outcome of things, but Humankind has the most amazing ability to ignore what it doesn't want to see, even when it's staring you in the face. They reached a place where lateral branches grew with particular thickness. Here's a shortcut to the future, said the bird. You can climb here. They scrambled up several limbs. Not too far, cautioned the bird. You don't have to go very far from where we were to come to the end of days. Let's walk out on this branch and see where we've come. They walked to the end of the branch and parted the leaves. The air was black with natural and unnatural catastrophe. A huge meteor fell into the ocean, causing earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, and tidal waves. The sky was blackened by these upheavals and by fire and nuclear war. It's the golden censer and the wrath of the first four angels, Jacob said, and recited out loud the passages from Revelation. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, voices, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. The first angel blew his trumpet. There followed hail and fire mixed with blood, which fell on the earth. And a third of the earth was burnt up, and a third of the trees were burnt up, and all green grass was burnt up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the fountains of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died of the water because it was made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light was darkened, a third of the day was kept from shining, and likewise, a third of the night. A good description of nuclear winter, Maggie said. I always wondered how John could have envisioned such a thing, but it's no great feat with a view like this. Did you know that Chernobyl, in their language, means wormwood? With the likes of that facility and 
Fukushima melting down, it could pollute a third of the waters. And the meteor that wiped out the dinosaurs 65 million years ago, Jake said, made the earth boil and then freeze as the dirt thrown up blackened the skies and blocked out the sun. Another one even half that size, or more likely a nuclear war, and there goes a third of light, at least. You're looking at it, said the bird, unless you change it. Welcome to the future. Now we go just a branch or two higher, said the bird, to see what your friend the snake will soon be up to. This will be his heyday, and you have to understand it if you want to understand him. He can't or won't see beyond the monumental chaos this time will represent. The stubbornness of man against repentance makes him a happy snake indeed. They stood on the higher branch, looking out on a scene similar to the one below. It looks the same to me, said Maggie. What's the difference? It's a spiritual difference, said the bird. It's the spiritual consequences of releasing pure evil into what's left of the earth. You remember that God bound many of the fallen angels in the pit? Now those furies get released. Jacob remembered and continued a quote from Revelation. In appearance, the locusts were like horses arrayed for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had scales like iron breastplates, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails like scorpions and stings, and their power of hurting men for five months lies in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon, destroyer. It sounds like an air attack before the troops move in, the sort of thing we did in Iraq and what Russia's doing in Ukraine today, I might add, Maggie said. Locusts look like helicopters and drones, and they carry their sting in their undercarriage. You're right about the similar tactics, Jacob said, since Revelation tells us that a ground invasion follows the air attacks. And he quoted some more. The number of the troops of Calvary was twice what uh, twice 10,000 times 10, uh, time, <laughs> 10,000. What it comes out to is 200 million. I heard their number, and this was how I saw the horses in my vision. The riders wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lions' heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur issued from their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur issuing from their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. Their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them, they wound. Those sound more like tanks than horses, Maggie said. Well, what did John know of tanks, Jacob asked. He could only describe things in terms he knew, and he does say, and this was how I saw the horses, he was describing a vision as best he could, and I think he did a pretty good job considering. So here I'll end my reading from Beneath the Phoenix Door. Now, before we end today's show, I have something to say about the nature and power of prayer. 
In all Marian apparitions, Mary urges us to pray. Why? Because prayer is intimately connected to our free will, our gift from God that we use for better or we use for worse. The concept of free will would be meaningless if our fate were already sealed. But prayer is not merely asking favors from God. Prayer is focusing the spark of God that's within us, within each of us, to move reality itself toward the values of peace and love. The best way to harness our collective free will to change our prophesied direction is through prayer. When we pray truly, wholeheartedly, we are expressing our free will wishes to God, and God does not normally interfere in our lives, but when we pray with our whole heart, God can harmonize that spiritual energy with others to facilitate that free will wish. When we pray meaningfully, we're not praying with our egos and willfulness, but with open hearts and the fullness of our love. Through prayer, we can open ourselves to God's love, the nature of the light itself, and speak to our spiritual family as if we were one with their nature as well as our own, because in reality, we are. The goal is to harmonize our earthly nature with our inherently spiritual one. Greed and power are the urgings of the ego, but the heart can change the ego. And by changing the ego, we can change the future. NDEs have proven this to be true. Remember, it was prayer that helped Poland stop the Russian invasion of 1920. Prayer can help defeat Russian aggression in the Ukraine, and prayer can even save us from the wrath we just heard described in Ezekiel 38 in the book of Revelation. To my mind, one of the best expressions of the understanding of prayer is in The Eagle Poem by Muscogee Creek nation poet Joy Harjo, who was honored as our nation's poet laureate in 2019. The Eagle Poem goes, To pray you open your whole self, to sky, to earth, to sun, to moon, to one whole voice that is you. And know that there is more that you can't see, can't hear, can't know except in moments steadily growing and in languages that aren't always sound, but other circles of motion like eagle that Sunday morning over Salt River, circled in blue sky and winds, swept our hearts clean with sacred wings. We see you see ourselves, and know that we must take the utmost care and kindness in all things. Breathe in, knowing we are made of all this, and breathe, knowing we are truly blessed because we were born and die soon within a true circle of motion, like eagle rounding out the morning inside us. We pray that it will be done in beauty, in beauty. With all its faults, the Catholic Church has a redeeming quality in its recognition of Mary and Marian apparitions as an expression of the maternal nature of God. While most aspects of most religious hierarchies wallow in toxic masculinity, the people's response to Mary raises Catholic understanding that a mother's love better expresses the nature of Jesus than all the Old Testament demands of the power structure. With that in mind, I want to close today with a prayer to the mother built lovingly into Catholic worship. 
I offer this prayer specifically to the mother, Mary of Ukraine, and for all her children there. Hail, Holy Queen, Mother of Mercy, our life, our sweetness, and our hope. To thee do we cry, poor banished children of Eve. To thee do we send up our sighs, mourning and weeping in this valley of tears. Turn then, most gracious advocate, thine eyes of mercy toward us, and after this our exile, show unto us the blessed fruit of thy womb, Jesus. O clement, O loving, O sweet Virgin Mary, pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Amen. Many listeners to this show write from time to time, expressing regrets that they never experienced an NDE. My response is often to encourage them to volunteer with hospice or some palliative care group and just spend some helpful time with the dying. To be present at someone's death holds the same spiritual power of being present at a birth, and death is, in fact, a birth, into our eternal life at home with God. I base this suggestion on my own 15 years as a hospital chaplain and the times I've spent with the dying and their families. An added blessing comes from the times the dying share their visions while coming into the other side. A first step to turning your life in this direction can be found in a new book by a Franciscan chaplain who dedicated her life to just such a role. Sister Kathleen Osbelt left hospital chaplaincy to found Francis House, a warm and loving hospice home in Syracuse, New York, to which she devoted 30 years of service. She has realized how lacking in spiritual comforts a hospital room can be, especially for the dying, and key to the role of hospice volunteer is a simple one, to channel God's great love for us into serving one another. To quote Sister Kathleen, breathe in God's light and breathe it out to the world. Just before opening Francis House, Sister Kathleen attended a lecture by Dr. Raymond Moody, who described the profound loving greeting we receive when we die. The main lesson learned from NDEs, as well as in caring for others, is this. Just love people where they are, as they are, and you will be communicating God's deep love itself. Sister Kathleen's book begins with that outpouring of love for you, the reader, just as you are. She then provides a meditation between chapters so that you may know more deeply you are a unique part of God's dream. It is from knowing how much God loves us that enables our own compassion for others to grow. And to complete the circle, compassion for others can lead us into gratitude to God for the multitudes God has given to us. Sister Kathleen founded a house for the dying that practiced all the lessons living is about. It is reflected in the pages of this book as well, the knowledge that each one of us embodies the suffering, the joy, the humility, the obedience, the forgiveness, the hope, and the witness we become to God's love. She crafted all this living wisdom into a home for the dying and into this fine little book as well. Glimpses of God in you and me can teach you as much as a near-death experience if you read it with the attention it deserves. Thank you, Sister Kathleen Osbelt for opening your heart to all God has given through you to the world. If listeners would like to hear this show again or any of our more than 400 archived ad-free NDE interviews, go to TalkZone's NDE radio site and hit the Past Shows button. 
or go to our YouTube channel, NDE Radio with Lee Whitting, where you can subscribe to and comment on the complete NDE Radio library. And be sure to check out our NDE Radio Facebook page. Just search NDE Radio with Lee Whitting on your Facebook app. And listen again next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern at Talk Zone for more NDE Radio. I'm your host, Lee Whitting, saying thanks for listening.